Thank you, Denise. Good morning. My name is Don, and I am an alcoholic. Sober this morning by the living grace of God and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, uh, some, they were supposed to tell some stories, and uh, I don't know as many as these. I can only remember one story from my drinking days during the war. Janice knows it, of course. And uh, this is the story of the young playboy who met a young woman down in the bar. And uh, he started talking to her, and as things progressed, he invited her up to his room to show her his etchings or whatever. Uh, when he got her up there and she came into the room, she was well-groomed, chic, and seemingly quite intellectual. So he asked her if she'd care for a drop of port or sherry wine. By sherry, by all means, she replied, because sherry to me is the nectar of all gods. Just looking at its here, crisp, looking at its here in its crystal clear decanter fills me with the anticipation of a heavenly thrill. And when that stopper is removed and the gorgeous liquid is poured into a glass, I inhale the delicious tangy fumes and I am lifted on the wings of ecstasy. It seems I taste its magic potion and my whole being seems to glow. A thousand violins throb in my ears and I'm sent into another world. On the other hand, she said, porch makes me fart. <laughs> That's the drinker story. <laughs> so, I'm going to turn these things off. I've, heard, I've, I've said, told the story so many times, I don't think I can stand to hear it again. Um, I'm one of these people that uh, didn't come to AA happily or willingly. I was finessed into going to my first meeting, and back then things were a little different than they are today, believe me. Uh, I was in hot water, and in, uh, Christmas, in November of 1947, we were a uh, pastoral visit. We were paid a pastoral visit, and when this pastor left, he handed me a parcel, and and uh, I opened it, and in it was a book entitled Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked at that book, and I looked at my wife and said, why do you think he left a book like that with me? She said, he probably thinks you need it. That did it. I fired the book into a corner, and I swore I would never read that book as long as I lived. And if that bird ever set foot inside this house again, I would bodily pick him up and throw him out. Because all these priests and ministers were the same. They were a bunch of racketeers who preyed on the, on the emotions of old women and young children. And this religion was a form of primitive superstition anyway, and anyone with any intelligence knows that, and that's the end of it. I don't want to hear any more. Uh, my wife, needs to say, was somewhat upset by this, and she says, Well, Donald, I'm a nurse, and we have patients in our hospital who are called alcoholics. And they're not as bad as you get sometimes. And I says, what do I have to do to prove that I'm not an alcoholic? And she says, just go in the wagon, don't take a drink for a whole year, and I'll never bring it up again. I said, fine, you're on. And so I went all through Christmas and New Year's without taking a drink, very uh, sanctimoniously and self-righteously, of course. Uh, you know, people come and visit, I'd pour them a drink, and they'd say, aren't you joining me? I said, no, I can't. And they'd say, why not? And I'd point to the kitchen, I'd say, her. I'd say, well, what's the matter? I'd say... Her mother was one of the original members of the Temperance Union, and they're not very happy unless everybody else is miserable. So, you know, she's a chip off the old block. And, but for the sake of the children, this is one of the crosses we men must bear, I suppose, and I'll put up with it. So I went all through the month of January, and we started into February. And one Saturday I said to her that uh, we lived in, uh, above a grocery store in northern Ontario in Canada, uh, where I'd gone to get away from drinking. And... Uh, 
Uh, I, I, I got up there and uh, I said to her that I was going to go to a meeting on Saturday night uh, up in Kirkland Lake, which is about 65 miles north of the town we lived in, and uh, of the Legion. And I said, I'm going up there. And she said, who are you going with? And I told her, she says, I don't think you should go. And I said, why not? Well, she said, they drink so much, and you've been doing so well now, you haven't had a drink for, for almost two months, and she said, uh, you should, you shouldn't get involved with anything like that. And so right away, I took offense, because, you know, here I'd quit drinking for her, and now she's gonna start picking my friends. At that point, I didn't care too much whether I went or not, but the minute she said you shouldn't, I said, I'm going. And of course, this is the story of my life. I never ever had troubles with a thou shouts. It was, Thou shalt nots were always a challenge to me. And so when she said, you shouldn't, I said, I'm going. We no sooner pulled out of town, and one of them pulled out a bottle of Sandy McDonald's Scotch whiskey. I can remember it vividly as if it were last night. And they passed it around, and it came to me, and I thought, can you imagine her not trusting me? You know, this is the whole problem with our marriage. She's never trusted me from the day we were married. You know, and I'm going to spend the night in Kirkland Lake. I could take one drink, and she'd never know anything about it. So I took a drink, and of course, nothing happened. Then it suddenly dawned on me. Well, you know, my problem is it's been all those wartime experiences I had. They were so traumatic, you know, and all this stuff. Say, they're wonderful excuses for drunks, believe me. Uh, so I thought, that was it, and now that everything has settled down, everything will be fine. So when the bottle came around again, I thought, well, that one didn't bother me. I could have another one. And besides, you know, if she did find out, it serves her right anyway for not trusting me in the first place. <laughs> now, if you can follow logic like that, you're in the right place this morning. Because that's called drunk logic. And normal people don't think that way. So I had another drink. Of course, I never did get to the meeting. The next day I got back home. It was Sunday morning. I embarrassed my wife and children once more. And then it was Monday morning. And this morning was Monday was different to any other morning. There's no more finger-waving and no more shaking ahead. Nothing. She was in the kitchen, totally incommunicado. She was not talking to me. And, you know, I just knew that I was in trouble this morning. And, of course, I used to tell her that I had a sixth sense, you know, and I just knew certain things. And she said, I'm so glad you do, Donald, because you obviously lack the other five. And uh, <laughs> but this, this sixth sense of mine just told me, you're in trouble today. I tried to talk to her, but she kept her back to me, and no way. I discovered later that was the morning she decided she was going to take the children and leave because she felt she was in a hopeless marriage. I didn't know that that morning, though. And so I started to go down the back stairs to the store, and it suddenly dawned on me, this is the morning I have to see that banker. And now that's, here it is, problem number two. And I'm just out of bed for 20 minutes, and here's this problem two. Because this banker, I felt, should have been a social worker. Because any time I went to see him about borrowing money for the store, he always wanted to give me a lecture about my drinking. But if she went over to see him, he'd always give us whatever we wanted and no problem. And so I, I resented that, of course. But I, and I knew she wouldn't go this morning because she wasn't talking to me. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And I thought, things can't get much worse. She's not talking to me. I can't go and face that bank. I'm in trouble. This has got to be the worst day of my life. And he goes downstairs. Well, on the 1st of January, New Year's Day that year in 48, my best drinking buddy, Hal Fleming, <coughs> got caught with the DTs and wound up in the local hospital. And when he was in that hospital, a pastor visited him and asked him what he was doing. And Hal said, I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. And the pastor says, well, why don't you stop drinking? He said, I would, but I don't know how. And he said, have you ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous? Hal said, no. And so the pastor said, I'll talk to one of the members and ask him to come and visit you. 
which they did, and they Hal got out of that hospital bed and never took another drink again for some 25 years later when he died of natural causes. But this bird had nothing better to do with, I guess, what they told him then in those days is now you've got to go and find another drunk, Hal. He says, oh, I know one, my buddy. I'll go and get him. So Hal, five minutes after he was sober, came over to the store to tell me about this wonderful thing that happened to him. He joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And God, when he said that, I don't talk so loud. You know, there's people in the store, they'll hear that word. Because that sounded terrible to me, Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, he wanted to tell me all about it. And I said, well, Hal, I'm so glad you found the answer to your problem because, you know, you were getting pretty bad. And I used to tell my wife, you know, Hal Fleming quit drinking. And she said, yes. And I said, he was getting real bad. And she said, you should know you're with him all the time. So, And I resented that, of course. And so when I saw Hal coming, I would duck out. And every other day he'd come over and want to talk to me. And I, I just kept fear of him. But this morning in February, I, as I say, I, I was in real trouble with her and the banker. And as I thought, things cannot get any worse. And I went to open the door of the store, and who comes walking across the street but this guy from the A&A, Hal Fleming. And I thought, there it goes. Trouble comes in threes. Her, the banker, now him. And as he's first in the store. There's nobody around. I'll have to stand there and talk to him. And he started to talk to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I said, uh, when do they have these meetings? He said, Friday night. Well, this is Monday night, and all of a sudden the light went on. I had a great idea. I said, uh, Friday, what do you do? He said, we just get together and we talk. I said, what do you talk about? Well, he said, just talk about drinking. I said, how much does it cost? He says, it's free. I said, well, which church is behind it? He said, there's no church. I said, there's no church, and it's free, and you just sit around and talk? I don't get it. He said, that's all there is to it. We don't drink. Then I said, can I talk to you in confidence, Hal? Oh, sure, he said. I said, you know, Hal, i got a brother who drinks quite a bit. Do you think I could go to one of those meetings with you as a, as a visitor and hear something that might help this brother? He said, oh, sure. You can come as my, my guest. I'll take you to the meeting. We can do that. And I said, wait right here. And I shot up the stairs. I went in the kitchen. Her back was still to me. I said, Hal Fleming's downstairs. Nothing. I said, I'm going to go to the, one of those A&A meetings with him on Friday night. That did it. She ran around, threw her arms around me. and said, oh, Donald, I'm so glad to hear you're finally going to do something about your drink. And I thought, nice going. I got her now. So I said, will you go to the bank for me? She says, yes. What should I tell him? So I told her what to say to the banker. And I thought, can you imagine that? 30 minutes ago, three major crises in my life. Now she's fixed. She's going to see the banker. I'll get rid of Hal Fleming. and Everything's going to be fine. That's not bad for one morning's work. <laughs> So I went down and I said, Hal, you'll have to leave. I'm very, very busy. i got a lot of work to do. I'll see you Friday. He said, okay, and he left. And so I stayed sober all day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Well, if you stay sober all week, why would you have to go to the A&A? So I started worrying about Hal coming over, so I closed the store a little early because I thought, uh, you know, he hadn't shown up. And I thought, good, he's forgotten all about it. Closed the store and went upstairs, sat down for dinner. And the phone rings. Miss Hal Fleming on the phone. And she's standing right there. She can hear the whole thing. So I said, well, you know, Hal, I'm very, very busy, and uh, I really can't, you know, make it tonight. But some other Friday night, I'll be glad to go with you, you know, but uh, just not tonight. And with that, she tapped me in the shoulder. She said, you promised, and I don't mind you breaking your word to the children and me, but you must keep your word with other people. And I thought, oh, God. So I said, where's the meeting, Hal? He said, it's in Haleybury. The next town is five miles away. I said, when? He said, 8.30. I said, good. We can go up and run bus back in the bus, the next, because the buses ran every hour. He said, oh, we don't have to go in the bus. 
one of the fellows is here with his car. We'll come over and pick you up. I said, don't you dare come over here. I could just see that big white station wagon, Alcoholics Anonymous, written on the side of it. And there'd be one of those loudspeakers and the roof, you know, blaring music, and some of these characters with bald heads and pigtails with handfuls of flowers and and uh, pamphlets and saying how they've been saved, and I didn't want to be saved by any of these people. And I said, don't you come over here. Said, God, if the neighbors saw their car at my door, they'd think that I was one of them. And I thought, boy, no way. So I said, you stay there. I'll come over to your house. <laughs> so I went down the back stairs and up a back alley with my coat collar up and my hat down over my eyes. And I thought, oh, this is terrible. And we got in the car and went up to the meeting. And there's four fellows there. And so they got me in and they, they started talking in a general way what they used to be like, what happened, and what they were like now. And as they started talking, I figured it out right away. I thought, this is a con game. What these birds do is they phone her, she tells them all about you, then they say they do those things, and that's how they suck people into this thing. <laughs> but I'm not that stupid. I thought, boy, when I get home, I'll straighten her out. And then they got into that part that she didn't know anything about. And that really had me worried. And I finally blurted it out. I said, how come you guys know so much about me? Oh, they said, we're not talking about you. I said, what are you talking about? They said, this is just a projection of the basic symptoms of alcoholism. And I said, well, I've done all those things and I'm not an alcoholic. Right away, that knowing look the drunks have, you know, we've got a live one tonight. So <laughs> that was it. Then they really turned the pressure out and the heat up. And that meeting started at 8.30 sharp. And this was back in 1948. AA was very new. They were desperate for membership. And a meeting lasted as long as it took them to convince that newcomer to come back for the next meeting. And uh, I took a lot of convincing. That meeting started at 8.30, and I never got home till half past two in the morning. And the wife said, how'd it go? And I said, I don't know. But the way these guys laid it out, I'm going to give it a try and see what happens. But if you dare say anything to your family or to mine, I'm going to quit and get drunk. So she said, don't worry, I, I won't tell us all. And that's why I say I'm sober today by the living grace of God and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because to me, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is, is a modern day miracle. And I'm not going to, to, to describe a miracle because if you believe in a power greater than yourself, there's no explanation necessary. If you don't believe in a power greater than yourself, there would be no explanation adequate. But when I say the living grace of God, God to me is what I choose to call a power greater than myself. It's simply the initials of good, orderly direction, the one thing that was missing in my entire life. And when I say the grace, it's the unmerited love and favor of. And the reason I say the living grace, because it is renewable on a 24-hour basis so long as I choose to renew that grace. And so I say I'm sober today by the living grace of God and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as time went on, I began to find things out. Uh, we got very, very busy. AA was new, and we did a lot of traveling, and there's a lot of funny things happened. Uh, I can recall when uh, we worked hard on one of the fellows that ran the ice cream plant, Bill, and he finally consented to come to the meeting, so he came down to our place, and Hilda was with him, his wife. And so we looked at Hilda, and we said, what are you doing, Hilda? She says, I'm going to the meeting with Bill. We said, you can't. She said, why not? We said, because they don't have women alcoholics, and you can't come to the meeting. Now, this is, has nothing to do with male chauvinism. It was just sheer ignorance. We didn't know that. We thought, can you imagine our luck? The one woman in the world 
who says she's an alcoholic would come to our group? No way, because if that outfit in New York found out, we'd get excommunicated or whatever it is they do to the groups that, you know, don't conform. So we said, you can't do that. So we went to the meeting, had our meeting, and then after meeting, Bill was telling us, you know, Hilda's as bad as I am, really, and sometimes worse, so we thought, God, it's just our luck. So we, we came upon the solution. After our meeting was over, we went back to home in the kitchen. We sat down with Hilda and had another little meeting just for Hilda, a private one for her. And that went on for a little while. God bless her. We finally, we found out that there were some other women in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and Hilda did get 25 years of sobriety before she died also. Uh, not so much because of us, but in spite of us. But it was just sheer ignorance. <laughs> we didn't know that in those days. And a lot of the learning has, we have to, experience comes in learning, and learning how to live. Uh, I look back, and I, they say that alcoholism is a threefold disease. It's emotional, spiritual, and, and, and physical. Now, it wasn't, we never knew what the physical part was. Uh, in fact, when they did a 12-step call in those days, uh, when they came to see me or we went to call a new person, what we did is when we finished talking, we said, now, we'll come and check with you tomorrow. But he said, what if I have to take a drink? Well, we'd give him some candy bars, say, eat a chocolate bar, drink a Coke, and, and call us, and we'll come right over. And they say, well, what's eating a chocolate bar going to do? We said, we don't know, but it seems to work. It'll hold you for a little bit anyway. So you just do that, because that's what they told me. Uh, and, of course, I would eat a whole layer off a top box of uh, turtles because, you know, if one bite's good, you know, a whole layer's got to be better, you know. That's, that's the story of my life. So, uh, And the first thing they did back then is we had to go and get a, a complete medical checkup by our doctors to make sure there's nothing else wrong with us. It wasn't until 1980 that our geneticists discovered that the physical sensitivity to alcohol is a biochemical genetic disorder. That simply means it is hereditary, whether we like it or not. And so that's a physical sensitivity only. Now, the other two parts of it, the emotional and spiritual. Yeah. Uh, what do I mean by emotional? Uh, I was uh, handicapped mentally. <laughs> uh, that's putting it mildly. Uh, one time I discovered uh, 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 something that was written in the Parade magazine a number of years back, and they were just discussing some of the uh, mental health terms that were commonly misused. And as I read those through those things, I was absolutely amazed. I thought, those birds are describing me, because they talked about anxiety and fear. And that was the first term they described, and they said, anxiety is when you're paralyzed with fright, but you don't know what you're afraid of. Many emotional disturbances begin with anxiety. Fear, on the other hand, is the dread of some specific thing. Well, I stopped to think about that, and I thought, golly, I must be anxious and fearful. That They're describing me, because I always had many, many fears. One of my great fears was I was so afraid to try anything in case I failed. And my rationale was, what would people think if I failed? And, of course, after coming to Alcoholics Anonymous and getting a little bit of common sense, I began to realize, uh, if you fail, nobody pays any attention. If you want to be noticed in life, be successful. And, of course, uh, uh, the best way to describe it is a little analogy. Let's talk about, uh, oh, in the early 1900s, a ship left England on its maiden voyage to New York. Now, the name of the ship was the Titanic. If anybody's heard of the Titanic, raise your hand if you've heard of the Titanic. Oh, okay, most of you have heard of the Titanic. Good. Now, the captain of that ship made an error in navigation, and the ship struck an iceberg and sank, and there's some 1,500 lives lost. That captain was guilty of the most colossal human failure of the era. Now, those of you who remember the name of the captain, raise your hands. 
Not a soul in the room. You know why you can't remember John Smith? Is because he was a failure. Now, let's talk about the same Atlantic Ocean, the same era, and we'll talk about success. This was the first crossing from New York to Paris of the North Atlantic Ocean solo in an airplane. And they call them ships, too. Now, the name of that airplane was the Spirit of St. Louis. Has anybody heard of it? Have you ever heard of the Spirit of St. Louis? Do any of you happen to remember the name of the captain that was successful? Oh, yeah, Charles Lindbergh. Ever since I've heard that story, I've never been afraid of failing since, because nobody remembers failure. And it can improve your life a thousand or multi-thousand percent if we forget about failure. And that was one of my big problems as an alcoholic. I'm so afraid of failure. What will people think? They won't think of things, so don't worry. <laughs> this other thing they talk about is psychosis. <laughs> this disorder is characterized by defective or lost contact with reality. Boy, that's me. I could sit there back in those days in the 40s, there's no such thing as all the lotteries and the gambling go on now. There's only one that was called the Irish sweepstake. And I just knew that my main problem, the reason I had all these problems, is because I never had enough money. And I would sit there drinking and watch that smoke curling up. And I would be thinking, if I could just win that first prize in the Irish lottery, $40,000 in those days, which is a fortune. I could build a house. It would look like a state capitol, you know, with a big dome on it and everything. And I could put her and the kids there. And they'd have a maid, and then I could have this car with a chauffeur looking after them. And then I could go to the Riviera and be a playboy. And all the neighbors say, isn't he a wonderful husband and father? Look what he's done for that family. And I just knew that if I could win this, I'd be home free. I didn't even have a ticket in the Irish Street State. (laughs) So then I discovered that I must have been psychotic as well as anxious and fearful. So there I am, anxious, fearful, psychotic. Neurosis. This is a dandy. (laughs) This emotional is is caused by a conflict in which the person is unaware. For example, you want sex, but you also want to please your mother, who said sex was bad. And this unconscious conflict produces a neurosis that could affect your sex life. Well, let's see. I'll tell you, that sex drive is very, very powerful. And to tell you how mixed up I was, I can vividly recall every detail of my first drink. It was gin, it was a Sunday afternoon, there were a couple of girls present. And so on. And I look back and I try and remember my first sexual experience, and I honest to God can't. The only thing I can recall today, I was all alone at the time. But apart from that, and so being being that being that confused and mixed up meant I was not only anxious, fearful, and psychotic, but I'm also neurotic. Now this next one is really something, and this it's called paranoia. Uh, And they say this is a severe but rare personality disorder in which a patient feels persecuted or has ambitions of grandeur. They say that's rare. In 45 years, I have never yet met an alcoholic who wasn't paranoid when they arrived on our doorstep. Every one of us are paranoid. And that's not a rare personality disorder. So I was paranoid as well. Uh, Manic depressive syndrome. Oh, that's a dandy. Uh, this condition is marked by mood swings of uncontrollable elation and activity, you know, hence mania. Uncontrolled mood swings. Well, if we drew a straight line, a perfectly straight line, that would be called total emotional control. But total control is an absolute. And there aren't, tw- uh, there aren't 25% or 15% of the population of North America that are even capable of practicing absolutes. Uh, a good example of one that did was uh, Nadja Kamanichi, 
the Romanian gymnast who won all, back a few years back, who won all the gold medals, is a girl who had total emotional control. If she had a slip on one of her exercises, she'd march off the stage and never blink an eyelash. She'd hug her coach, and uh, then she'd maybe have a few tears of disappointment. Uh, or if she did a perfect score, she'd march off the stage and never show of any emotion, never flick her eyelash, hug her coach, maybe a few tears of joy, but always under total control. She had to go back on, she just wiped her eyes and right back on that stage and everything went perfectly clockwise. Now the average person, a normal person, has a, an emotional level that goes like this. They'll feel good for a little while, then they'll little feel bad, little feel good, then a little bad, and so on. An alcoholic, I as an alcoholic, never had a little up and down. Mine were way up here, sheer ecstasy. I finally met the girl that I've loved all my life, and here she is, Janice. She says, have you met my husband, Gordon? <laughs> Not feel bad down here. Depression. Suicidal. The story of my life. I'll never find a girl again. Oh, here's one right here. Up and down like this. Ex- sheer ecstasy, depression. Up and down like a toilet seat at a mixed party all the time. <laughs> That's the emotional level of the alcoholic. Over or under amplified at all times. Schizophrenia. <laughs> this group of disorders can cause, hallucin- uh, can cause delusions, hallucinations, or aggressive and antisocial behavior. I was insanely jealous of my wife. <laughs> and that might sound strange, because I didn't treat her very well, you know, when we were first married, but I was even jealous of my first sponsors when I came to AA because I resented the fact she talked to him more than she did to me. And I began to wonder if there isn't something going on there. And I get really upset. And it wasn't until I'd been in AA for some while and somebody said to me, why are you always so jealous? And I said, because it's a natural feeling. And they said, well, another word for jealousy is inferiority complex. Why do you feel inferior? Do you always want to remain feeling inferior? And I said, no. And they said, stop feeling jealous then. And so that's all of us do. So I've never been jealous of her ever since. And I don't think she's jealous of me. We just accept each other. And so that's a wonderful thing that we can do this. Get rid of jealousy and all these fears. Now, when you look at all those things that we are anxious, fearful, neurotic, paranoid, uh, manic, depressive, schizophrenic, this is why the medical community has difficulty with us. <laughs> because you see, the psychiatrist, well, when we come to visit him, we'll see, he'll say, well, how are you today? So you describe your symptoms. He says, Manic depressive. He looks at the chart. That's what he wasn't last week. He was neurotic last week. <laughs> and the next thing is manic depressive syndrome or paranoia or neurosis. What he should say when an alcoholic was in is, who are you today? Then he'd be right on it all the time. And we could explain who we were that day. So that's uh, some of the things that we, we have to learn. And so the, that's the emotional part. Now, the spiritual handicap is, is something different. And after a little while, as I say, I was a rampant agnostic when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the guys, when they started reading these steps and stuff, and I said, wait a minute, I can't go along with that stuff. And they said, why not? And I said, because I'm an an agnostic. I don't believe in God and that stuff. And they said, well, uh, you know, just keep coming and keep an open mind and things might change. So I discovered after a little while, one of the benefits of staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous is after a little while... We begin to get this thing called, quote, common sense. Just a little bit of common sense starts to drift in. And we begin to look at it and realize. Because when they said they talked about a spiritual program, I said, wait a minute, I can't go for that religion. They said, oh, we're not talking about religion. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, spirituality. 
And, of course, smart me, I said, well, what's the difference? So they explained to me. They were very patient in those days. They said, religion is an organized form of worship and beliefs. Spiritual is pertaining to a state of mind. The two words are not synonymous. You can be religious without being spiritual. You can be spiritual without being religious. Unfortunately, you can also be both, but they don't mean the same thing. And so this program is an ideal thing for agnostics or anybody because it's a spiritual program, not a religious one. And as this little bit of common sense comes by, now you'd say, well, why did you become an agnostic? And I said, well, it's very simple. You look at the world we live in and the things that go on. And I said, there can't be any God because, you know, have you ever noticed to her where they claim, you know, when, they were, when you're a child going to Sunday school, they snow you with all these, these stories. Talk about a couple of thousand years ago, this carpenter who rode around the country in a donkey, and he made a blind man see, and he made a lame man walk, and boom, just like that. And he said it wasn't him, it was his father. God performed the miracle. And, of course, that's a couple of thousand years ago. Nobody's ever got any pictures. I've never seen any proof of that. And you always, Reader's Digest has all a list of miracles, you know. But have you ever noticed where the miracles are? They're in Italy, Spain, France, Yugoslavia. Never anywhere where you can go and track down the facts yourself. It's highly emotional people that came up and dreamed these things up. But good old Canada, USA, no miracles. And this God was half as smart as they claim he is. He'd perform a miracle I could see with my own eyes. But no miracles, no God. That's That's simple, isn't it? But the fortunate thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, as time goes on, this little bit of common sense starts coming in. And we began to open our eyes and look at the world that we live in. And we're amazed by the number of miracles there really are happening every day in every way. I was just never aware of them before. My name is Don. Why am I called Don? Because my human parents called me that. But humans are extremely limited. I mean, there how many dons in Seattle, United States, the world over? Must be hundreds of thousands. So that's not very novel or, or different. But that's because humans are so limited. But I have another identification, and that's my fingerprints. If we all held up our hands in this room, we'd all look alike, generally. But we all know there's no two sets of fingerprints in this room that's the same. Isn't that amazing? Until you go one step further and discover there are 275 million Americans, and there's no two sets of fingerprints the same. And now let's go beyond that, and there are 5.3 billion human souls in the face of this earth, and there are no two sets of fingerprints the same. How can you explain that? Remember, each human has 10 prints, so that's 53 billion without duplication. Can anybody describe how or why that happens? Nobody's ever just told me how. They just shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's the way it is. That tells me that this is a good thing then, because if nobody has my prints, that means I'm here for a purpose, because I have an identity, and I must be here for some purpose, and I'm glad I am, because that makes me useful for some reason or another, which I may not know. But the mere fact there's no two sets of fingerprints the same is an amazing miracle. And you, this happens in so many ways. In California, you know, for many, many years, the, the uh, swallows from Capistrano used to take off in a certain day every year. And then they'd come back in a certain day. And nobody ever knew where they went. And they couldn't figure it out. They just seemed to disappear. They flew south and out over the water, and that was, that was the end of them. And they never knew. But a strange thing happened. They used to have swallows show up in Buenos Aires. 
and 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 uh, in Argentina every year or so and leave at a certain time. And it was fairly closely related to the Capistrano uh, swallows, but not close enough. And uh, of course, ornithologists said no, they couldn't possibly be the same birds because they had to fly over an expanse of water. The bird is too small and would get tired and drown if it fell into the water. So it couldn't be the same ones. And it was just a few short years ago that some ornithologists were down on the southern coast of California when the swallows came down from Capistrano. And they noticed a strange thing. These birds all landed, and they started walking around on the beach and the shore. And when each little bird found a little twig, they picked this twig up in the feet, and they flocked together, and they headed out across the water. Now, when they get tired, they would come down close, drop the little stick, and land on it, and bob up and down, and get a rest. And when they were rested, they'd close their feet in a little stick, pick it up, and head further south. And they did the same thing coming back. So those were the same swallows that go every year down to uh, Buenos Aires. And the, and the thing is, who taught those swallows to do a thing like that? You know? And besides, where did they, how did they know how to get there and back? I mean, with our radar and everything else, human beings can't do that. It's just amazing. And that's another miracle. And then we look at the geese that fly back and forth. Where we live in the prairies of, of America, we see the geese every year flying north to Canada and then flying south every year. And the goose is the heaviest bird that flies. And you'll notice a very strange thing with geese. They're different to any other bird. They just don't flock. They fly in a V formation. Sometimes it's longer and spread out, but they're always in a formation with one at the head. And the reason for that is that the lead goose, flapping his wings, burbles the air. And the other geese fly along that burbled air. And it requires 25% less energy to remain airborne in burbled air than it does smooth air. And that's why our aeronautical engineers have just told us in the last few years since the war, you know, that we have these big jumbo jets with the little tipped-up wingtips and the little uh, spoilers and wings. And the reason for that is to burble the air to keep that airplane up using 25% less energy or less fuel. Who taught, And every so often the lead goose gets tired, by the way, will come out, another one takes its place, and they keep rotating to do that, because the one in the, in the lead has to use 100% energy to remain airborne, but the only others only require 75%, so they can fly along a lot easier and they go long distances. Who taught those birds to do that? You know, that's an, another miracle, because they've taught our aeronautical engineers that, because they're doing that with the jumbo jets now, and we're, we're learning from the birds, which is just amazing. Another one of the, the miracles, we are told that there's a thing called Mother Nature, a balance of the, uh, the universe, and we have to look at this balance. And four years ago, the country of Bangladesh was the number one exporter of, world, of frog's legs in the world. Bangladesh sent all the frog's legs to all the great restaurants throughout the world. And then they started cutting down the rainforests. And they were told the people of that country to stop doing that, because if they cut down the rainforest, they'd lose their soil and they'd get flooding. But they persisted, and sure enough, as they cut down the rainforest, it started to erode the soil, and they started getting flooding. And with the flooding came flies, and then they discovered the flies carried disease, and Bangladesh was in real trouble. And just four years ago, going from the number one exporter of frog's legs, it is now a criminal offense in the country of Bangladesh to kill a frog, because they discovered the only control of flies is frogs, and so Bangladesh 
cannot kill a frog. And so they've had to get the frog's legs elsewhere. But this is what I mean. Here's a miracle after miracle after miracle. And of course, one of the greatest miracles of all, and I think it's it's with us all the time. And I think and I see this the simple thing. If you take a little tiny brown seed and you can stick it in some black soil, and you don't have to worry whether it's upright or on its side or upside down. Just stick it on the black soil of your finger. And then give it some moisture and some light. And an amazing thing happens. That root always goes down. And the first thing you know, you get a dark green plant pops up. And you say, how can you get a dark green plant out of black soil from a tiny brown seed? Until the plant gets so high and you pull it out of the ground and it has a bright red root. And you say, a bright red root from a dark green plant out of black soil from a tiny brown seed? And then you cut the root in half and it has a pure white heart. How can you have a pure white heart in a bright red root from a dark green plant out of black soil from a tiny brown seed? That's a miracle. And so today, every time I go by a salad bar and I look at the radish, I always acknowledge God is alive and well performing miracles. But wait a minute. We, we got a lot of funny people in this country. They think God is dead and Elvis is alive. Uh, no way. No way at all. God is very much alive, performing his miracles every day in every way. And then we think of this thing, Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we're really lucky that we have a sponsorship conference here and all these people are here. Now, the women, the ladies, I should say, it's not so important for them. But we men here today are very, very fortunate. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you one of the alternatives to, to Alcoholics Anonymous. My daughter, who happens to live in Singapore, sees <laughs> uh, uh cut this out of the Straits Time, the newspaper over there. And it's a print from New Delhi in India. And I'll tell you what they're doing in some, certain parts of the world about their alcoholism. Then you can realize how fortunate we are. This is from New Delhi. Women in India's northeast state of Manipur have discovered a foolproof way to cure their male relatives' alcohol addictions. Any man caught drinking by female temperance patrols is tied, naked, atop a donkey, and paraded through the streets. He must promise never to drink again. This strategy follows on the heels of a decades-long grassroots campaign by the Women's War Association to ban alcohol consumption. Although the government finally capitulated last spring, prohibition was soon followed by a surge of illegally distilled rice liquor by Kabul, Naga tribals, who have long made their living off moonshine. Undaunted, the women expanded their dusk-to-midnight patrols across the towns of Manipur Valley, where most of the population lives, and an estimated 45% of the men have a drinking problem. Dubbed Myra Palibus, or torchbearers, because of the paraffin torches they carry, the women position themselves at street corners, whistling up reinforcements within minutes of detecting a clutch of drunk males. First, they force their captives to disclose the whereabouts of the local still, which they destroy. Then they start the donkey treatment. <laughs> and anyone caught by the patrols never wants to repeat experience and is usually cured of drinking, says a Manipur government official, who asked that his name not be used. <laughs> Senior officials enjoy no immunity, and even casual drinkers now make sure they are hundreds of miles away from the state before turning to uh, drink alcohol, daring to drink alcohol. One terrified male drinker, realizing patrols were trailing him, ducked into a friend's house and emerged dressed as a woman, temporarily fooling his pursuers. 
but his drunken gait eventually gave way. <laughs> now, the success of Manipuri women in their anti-alcohol drive has encouraged women from the Himalayan states of Assam, Sikkim, and the Grawal Hills of Upper Pradesh, Pradesh to launch similar temperance campaigns. So, I'm just glad we have Alcoholics Anonymous here. I'd hate to be a drunk in India. You know, that's really tough. But one of the things I had to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous was the greatest thing I think they have given me was an education. Because the things they taught me, I would always question. And at one time, I was very afraid of questioning. And uh, I remember one of the first times I went to a, a service conference in, in Toronto, in Canada, and my sponsor at that time was Adam Adam Capeling. He was the first delegate to uh, to the General Service Conference. And we were at this meeting in Toronto, and he said, oh, were there any questions? And nobody had any questions, so he closed the meeting. We got in the car, and I started right away. What, what about this? What about that? And he turned to me, and he said, Don, why didn't you ask those questions when I asked if there were any questions? And I said, well, I didn't want to look stupid at him you know, in front of all those people. I have never forgotten his reply. He says, Don, a wise man asks questions and appears foolish for a few moments. A fool never asks a question and remains a fool all his life. I've never been afraid to ask a question from that day on, believe me, because that's the way it goes. The other thing is they taught me the definition of many, many things. They told me you have to get honest with yourself. And they said, you know what that is? And I said, well, of course, everybody knows what honesty is. My sponsor wrote it out on a placemat for me. And he says, memorize it. And honesty is a total absence of any intent to deceive. Ah, boy, that's hitting below the belt. Because, you know, uh, I, you know, if my wife had given me a letter to mail and I put it in my pocket in the morning, went down, forgot, and came home, and she said, did you mail my letter this morning? I'd look and I'd say, well, what do you think I did with it? She said, Donald, did you mail my letter? I said, my God, woman, I go out of the house right down past the post office every morning on the way to the office. She said, did you mail my letter? I said, what do you think I did with it? Throw it in the garbage? I said, you don't trust me to do a simple thing like mail a letter. And we're wondering what's going on with this marriage of ours. And she said, well, I'm sorry. I said, you should be. And then I'd sit down and pick up the paper. I never lied to her. If she wanted to sort of jump to the conclusion that I had mailed her letter, that was her problem. And so uh, they sure made a difference in our, our uh, marital relations by that, I'll tell you. Uh, they taught me about love. I never knew, I never knew the difference between uh, love or heat. It's uh, that simple. Most alcoholics don't. We say we're in love, it means we're in heat. Because it's a, it's a very different thing. And for a long time I wondered, what, did, what was love? And the best description I found, uh, my wife found it and showed it to me. And uh, I'm just being honest now. Uh, and it was in a, uh, Anne Morrill Lindbergh on The Force of Love in her book Locked Rooms and Open Doors. And she described life love this way. And the more I read that, the more I understood what it means about Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're always talking about love and service. And why it is so important that we learn how to love. And Anne Morrill Lindbergh says, People talk about love as though it were something you could give. Like an armful of flowers. And a lot of people give love like that. Just dump it down on top of you, a useless, strong-scented burden. I don't think it is anything you can give. Love is a force in you that enables you to give other things. It is the motivating power. It enables you to give strength and power and freedom and peace to another person. It is not a result. It is a cause. 
It is not a product. It produces. It is a power, like money or steam or electricity. It is valueless unless you can give something else by means of it. And I think this is why it's important we learn to love and to give in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then one of the greatest uh, miracles of all, that was the hardest one, and it took me the longest to discover the doorstep, when I arrived on the doorstep of Alcoholics Anonymous, I lived in a house. It wasn't a home. A house is a building. A home is where there's warmth and love and communication. And that wasn't the way in our house. So I lived in a house, and I had a wife, but she didn't have a husband. I had two children, but they didn't have a father. And the business I was in was on the verge of bankruptcy. And that's a condition I was in when I came to your doorstep. And I'm the guy who said... If there was a God, he'd perform a miracle that I could witness with my own eyes. And if there's no miracle, there's no God. But if he could perform a miracle, I could believe. And as time went by, I just had to take a look at my own life. A few months and a couple of years went by, and it suddenly dawned on me. I saw the program of Alcoholics Anonymous turn a house into a home. It gave a woman a husband. It gave two children a father. And it gave the, turned the business I was in to an extremely successful business, instead of one being on the verge of bankruptcy. And those are the things that happened by my coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, and by seeing all these miracles. And so I happen to believe with all my heart and soul that there is a power in this world. And whatever you want to call it is God. We talk about sponsorship. And this is another reason I I'm so believe so much in sponsorship. Because I believe that before we can have faith in something intangible, we must trust something tangible. Now, something tangible is something you can hear, see, smell, taste, or touch. An intangible, you can never hear it, see it, smell it, taste, or touch it, but it's there anyway. For example, the oxygen we're breathing in this room now. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that there's oxygen in this room. Yet we can never see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, or touch it. Yet each and every one of us in this room has total faith in oxygen. The reason we have faith in oxygen, an intangible, we trusted a tangible, a father, or a grandfather, or a teacher, or a scientist, but some human we had to trust totally, and because we trusted, we have faith. Because trust is the beginning of faith. It's that simple. And it wasn't until I did my fifth step with, with my sponsor. I tried it first time, and it didn't work. Because as a pastor, I went through it, and with, in my case, it was a little different. Because I went through this, and then as his eyes widened, I began to elaborate a little bit on the stories, you know. And uh, he was so impressed by this fifth step. But I didn't feel clean inside after it was done. And it wasn't until one night we were driving in the car, and I started to blurt it out with my sponsor. Because for the first time in my life, I had to trust another human being totally with my whole story. And before I and so by learning how to trust a human being, trust is the beginning of faith. So I had to have faith in a power greater than myself. And I think of all these things and I thought one time and you'll realize the story of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as we grow older in AA we begin to change many of our feelings about the program. And I guess the one who said it best of all, in my opinion, was Bernard Smith, who was the chairman of our, the board of our, our board of trustees for the first six years of Alcoholics Anonymous when he had a board. And he was asked to describe 
Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, "What?" It, they asked him, what is AA's true message to the world? And I've never forgotten it. Bernard Smith said, AA's true message is the world, to the world is not in that they have succeeded in ceasing to drink, but in so ceasing to drink, they have succeeded in learning to live. And one final thing in closing, before I close, I used to think that, you know, this God bit was, was really not for me. Because, see, I tried all those prayers. I, I even got down on my knees and prayed, you know, this, all this stuff, Hollywood stuff. My prayers were never answered. And, of course, I never had any faith. And I could never understand. But God always looks after us. And when I prayed, I, re- I said, my prayers are never answered. And I was a number of years sober before it dawned on me that God doesn't answer our prayers by giving us what we ask. He gives us what we need. And some time ago, a couple of hundred years ago, an anonymous soldier of the Confederacy described the higher power. And I took that and I took it into my wife and said, how could that guy know the story of my life 200 years ago? And he's talking about the ways of the Lord. And it goes something like that. I asked God for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for help that I might do greater things, but I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. Instead, I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. So despite myself, my prayers were answered, and I feel I am among all men most richly blessed. And all I can say to this wonderful audience in Seattle this morning is God bless every one of you. Thank you.